0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at brex.com.
1: In my fourth and final full interview for Hispanic Heritage Month, I'm taking a look forward at the next generation of Hispanic artists. Tadeo Martinez just graduated from college last year with a BFA in theater, but even at a young age, he's learned important truths when it comes to performing and auditioning.
0: But it, I found that it wasn't until I brought all of me into the room, and that meant like choosing a piece in Spanish and standing by it, um, bringing my full identity into the callback room, that's when I started to see results.
1: Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring conversations with fellow artists about the realities of life in the arts, all while challenging the notion of what it means to make it in this business. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and if you'd like to support the work of this podcast, there's now a way to give monthly donations. And as my thank you, that monthly support will come with early access to interviews like these before they're ever released to the public. Just go to donate.winmepodcast.com to find out how you can support Why I'll Never Make It. When it comes to the guests on this podcast, most of them are fairly well established. This allows me to Google them, find pictures and stories about them, and get to know their body of work before I interview them. But for Tadeo Martinez, there wasn't much to go on. I found a couple of show reviews and his website. Now, this is no slide on Tadeo. I mean, I didn't have much either coming out of college. But what I did find certainly gave me enough cause to bring him on the podcast, especially when I read of his desire to bring more Latino and Hispanic representation to theater. So in today's episode, you and I are going to get to know this extraordinarily talented young man. As I mentioned, he graduated college just a year ago.
0: I went to Southern Methodist University in in Dallas.
1: But like many of us back in high school, Tadeo had several colleges in mind that he wanted to go to.
0: Originally, I had like 12 to 15 on my list. And then I got into SMU in like October, like September, October
1: Of, of your senior year.
0: Of my senior year. Like, it happened really fast. So then I auditioned for, like, four others. (laughs) Just in case. Yes, because I had the insane privilege of being accepted (laughs) to college that early. Yeah, that is
1: really Now, so was SMU still your top choice? Or did you audition with those others thinking, if I get this, I'm going to go here instead?
0: It was a little of both. I kind of just wanted the option to go farther away from home. Okay. Because
1: how far away is Monterey
0: to Dallas? It's like... 15 hours driving, 10 to 15 hours driving, like an hour flight. So it's pretty close. Um, And of course, like dreaming of of doing theater in New York, I wanted to go up there and I, I wanted to go to New York or Pennsylvania or Boston.
1: Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to traveling, one of the first things I associate with a particular state or city is its food. Like the places Tadeo just mentioned... They each have their own distinctive cuisine. And so today when I got to talking about different restaurants and food choices, he mentioned a favorite taco place near the college campus. But our talk of food led us down an interesting path.
0: That's good. Yeah. And I mean, like, an authentic taco. It's like a quesadilla is authentic. It's pretty authentic. Oh, I love a quesadilla. Yeah, quesadilla. You can throw some meat on there, make it a gringa. That's what we call them.
1: Oh, oh! If you add meat to a quesadilla, it's a gringa.
0: It's a gringa. I don't okay. know why, but what, what does gringa mean? Is that like a? F- it's like what we call Americans.
1: <laughs> well, right, right. So I was thinking, so like yeah. a foreign female.
0: I mean, gringa is not all. F- Foreigns, though that it's particularly to America. Okay, right. And I'm a gringo for sure. Yes. Yes, but during the war or something, the war in Texas. This may be a hundred percent a lie.
1: Making up history. Here we go.
0: <laughs> I would love to have that show, making up history with Leo. Um But someone told me that it would it had it originated during the the war in Texas because they'd see the armies coming and they'd go green go. <laughs>
1: No, no. I want it so, to be true, so, though,
0: Patrick.
1: No, no, no that, that's like... I don't know if it's true, but I love no, it. No, no, no. Like, it's, it's so comical that it might be true, but it's also so ridiculous that I, I find it hard to believe. Because <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> In the last three episodes for Hispanic Heritage Month, I've highlighted some interesting and relevant pieces of history. But Tadeo gave me the idea to research the actual origin of gringo. Now, first off, his story about U.S. soldiers and the Mexican-American War being told gringo home is not correct. But it is not the only somewhat comical origin story for the word gringo. In 1883, the Los Angeles Times and the Arizona Weekly Citizen both published an article explaining where this word came from. They said, A lot of sailors belonging to an English man-of-war at Mazatlan went ashore and got rip-roaring drunk. While parading the streets, one of them was singing Green Grow the Rushes. The Mexicans only caught the first two words and called them gringos, and it's stuck ever since. However, a century before that Mexican-American War... The word gringo had already been circulating in Spanish-language dictionaries. In the 1787 El Diccionario Castellano, it says, Foreigners in Malaga are called gringos, who have particular kinds of accents that deprive them from easy and natural Castilian speech, and in Madrid the name is given especially to the Irish for the same reason. Now, Irish soldiers had been joining the Spanish army from the 16th through the 18th century, so Spaniards would have been familiar with their quote-unquote gibberish. And that's because, you see, gringo is actually just a variation of the Spanish word for Greek, which is griego. The use of Greek as the stand-in for unintelligible foreigner talk is somewhat familiar to English speakers as well as in the expression, it's all Greek to me. So, in all actuality, the word gringo was not invented by Mexican popular folklore. It came centuries ago from Spain, and it was basically applied to those who spoke an incomprehensible language. So, when the United States invaded Mexico in the mid-19th century, the word sprang from popular memory, and the invaders who spoke a strange language were once again called gringos. But I can't really fault Tadeo for the funny story he heard. We've all grown up with our parents and family telling us made-up or inaccurate stories from history. I mean, when you think about it, that's what us actors do, right? We improv, play make-believe, and pretend for a living.
0: I grew up playing pretend, like that's, that's just what I did. Um, so then when I started getting to getting into theater at school and kind of was starting to think about doing it professionally, acting as a career, um, my parents were like a little surprised, but not shocked because, because
1: did they have their own idea of what you should be doing or what career you should be?
0: Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, it's not. That It's becoming more common, but it's not that common to, to say, hey, I want to be an actor um, in Monterrey, Mexico, to your parents. We have a lot of actors and, and singers and artists here, just not everyone does it fully, fully professionally. Mm. Um, but it's, it's growing, which is really, really exciting because there's a, there's a lot of talent here.
1: In fact, though it wasn't on purpose at all, Monterey has been somewhat of a focus here on the podcast for Hispanic Heritage Month. Jaime Lozano and Bianca Marroquin are both from there. And several weeks ago, Monterey native Roberto Araujo was also on the podcast. So... Tadeo is now the fourth person from there to appear on the podcast.
0: First of all, that makes me so happy and so proud. Um, And second, I'm telling you, there's so much talent in Monterrey.
1: Now, as an aside, I have to tell you, I love the way he says Monterrey. I took three and a half years of Spanish and could never master the skill of rolling the R's like that. But then Tadeo actually confessed something to me.
0: You know, I could not do it either, so I had to go to speech therapy because, like, every other word in Spanish is double R. And I wait,
1: don't wait, wait. So, so wait. So wait. So as as a Mexican, you had to go to speech class to learn to speak more Mexican.
0: Yeah, in your Spanish. To, yes, so that I could go. I could do the double R. Yes, a hundred percent. And that is so interesting. I do not remember how this happened. I just remember this woman, this older woman putting cajeta, which is like a dulce de leche type candy, so good, she put it on a spoon and she shoved it down my throat and she was like, ours, ours and I was like, oh and that's how I learned That sounds like torture though No, it it, kind of, well yes, I'm sure it was, but now I I just think of it fondly because of the cajeta
1: Yeah, because it probably was very tasty. Yes,
0: exactly but yes (laughs)
1: But even though he had lessons in learning and perfecting the rolling of his Rs, Tadeo didn't have as much experience or practice being on stage. That took him a little while longer to learn.
0: I mean, growing up, growing up in Monterrey, like I didn't, I didn't really know anything. I remember going into auditions, like having to figure out what a monologue even was. Um, like, I'd, yeah, I'd never, even, I'd never even like auditioned before outside of high school. Um, I wouldn't even go up for like community theater things here in Monterrey because I was so shy and like afraid of it. Um,
1: and and there, are there a lot of local productions that happen or is it mostly uh, touring or traveling productions that come into the city?
0: Now it's both. When I was growing up, there were like, like one or two regional productions a year kind of like community theater um now they've like built this theater and and now like touring shows come through and the the arts culture and in, in monterey it's growing but it used to be that n- not at all
1: so then with th- that limited exposure to it what made you think oh well then i i want to pursue that even though i don't really see it around me
0: well i was m- my mom was a dancer so i was around kind of like art growing up. My mom danced for 14 years. A gorgeous, gorgeous dancer. And what about your father? Well, first of all, my dad is like 10 years older than my mom. Um, he had a previous marriage. Like, He had a life. He had a life. He's 10 years older. They met in a bar. But my my dad is like, first of all, he's a trooper because he liked his kid, like his young son to play rehearsal. Um, and then like drive him to go look at cars with him and I would literally make up words for different parts of the car because I did not know what they were. Um, so it's weird. And then, like, my sister is very into... My sister is, like, a psych... She's younger than me, but she's, uh, she's going into psychology, so she's very, like, interested in, like, little kids. Um, I have three half-brothers who, like, I see sometimes... Like, it's... Patrick, it's weird. It's very Mexican, Um, and then like my mom's side of the family, it's just her and her younger brother. And I, and it's like four cousins in general. And then my dad's family, he's the youngest of five and all of them have at least five kids. So it's gotten to the point where like, I don't know who's my cousin and who, or who's my niece or who's my aunt. Like those family reunions, I, they make me sweat. Um, (laughs) So my family's all over, all over the place.
1: (laughs) So then your mother being a dancer, did she dance professionally or was this something that she did on the side? She
0: was a dance teacher. And then she also danced. Like, I don't think she like danced professionally, but she did a lot of contests through like the place she taught at. Um, Mm. But growing up, I have memories of, well, first of all, she gave, she, I think she was a dance teacher while she was pregnant with me, which may have, Like, maybe psychologists listening to this will explain to us how that affected me. But are you a dancer? I mean, not really. But, like, I'm Latino, so I can move my hips. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, not really. So, yeah. But I have memories as a kid, like, going to watch her teach dance class and, like, sitting on the side and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you were around artistic people.
0: Yes. Like, my aunts on my dad's side loved to sing and dance one of my aunts loves theater so like I, my fi- like there's so much family patrick that like someone had to be artistic because there's so many people um so yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you've never felt like the black sheep or the oh 100 percent, yes oh okay
0: 100 um because i'm the first one to, to actually do it for a living I'm the first one to be like, I'm going to go abroad and be a working actor. Um, And they're all like, what? You can do that?
1: It's like, don't you want to fix cars?
0: Yeah. Like, are are you sure? You don't want to like sell something?
1: I certainly know for myself, I tried those nine to five jobs when I was living in Orlando, Florida. In fact, I even sold cars for a couple of months. But whether it was sales or retail or office jobs, none of them really seemed to fit. I think most actors from a young age have that creative spark and energy that isn't easily contained. And usually we can point it all back to a particular show or a moment when we caught the acting bug.
0: This is weird, but I was obsessed with That's So Raven on Disney Channel. I was just <laughs> obsessed with Raven Simone. Um <laughs> And when I learned that I could do something like that or do a version of that in theater, because um, my version of doing that was high school productions and stuff, um, mm-hmm. I was all for it. I was like, yes, I want to be like Raven. Um, so that's. That's so Tadeo. That's so Tadeo, yeah. So that's <laughs> literally how it started. Um, and then I found theater and then I just started researching musical theater broadway shows and then later on you know started to read a couple of more plays and i just became fully 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 obsessed with it um i was not that popular as a kid so it was i also had a lot of time to obsess over it (laughs) yes yes
1: yeah, yeah. Believe me, I was I was at home a lot, doing a lot of pretending and and watching TV shows and singing along to, to albums or what. Yeah. Yes. So I, what was your go to yeah.
0: album? Like, what would what would you sing along to? Okay.
1: Well, see, I was back whenever I was a kid. I think it had come out years before I was born, but but it was something that my mother had, and so when I was like seven, eight, nine, 10, I was listening to an actual LP record of The Hobbit. There was an animated feature that had been done and they had basically put the whole movie onto the LP. So it was all the dialogue, all the different songs and music that would come in and I would listen to it obsessively. I would imitate the voices. I would sing oh along with God. the songs, everything.
0: That is incredible. That
1: was one thing that I absolutely loved. So for you, like, what did you listen to? For me, it was wicked,
0: like a hundred percent, but I, not because I'd necessarily seen it. I had a cousin, I had a cousin who'd seen it. Um, and she was like, "There's this show. It's about the Wicked Witch of the West." La la. la. So I found the album, and I would just li- I would just listen to it. And I became f- I would make my friends watch YouTube videos of Edina Menzel singing Define Gravity." Kristen was like they I I'm shocked they're still my friends to this day because they just don't care. They were not interested. <laughs> <laughs> But they would sit through the entire thing.
1: That is a good friend. Especially it's a, it's if they're
0: not in the arts at all. A hundred percent. The fact that they know Defying Gravity is, I, I'm very proud of, because it's, I, I, it's my doing.
1: Well, well, yeah, I think Wicked was the Hamilton of its time. It was kind of, everyone knew what Wicked yeah. was, even if they didn't know Broadway or theater per se. You know, and Hamilton is kind of that way, too. Many people know the album or the music, yeah, but they've never true. seen the show.
0: It's very yeah. true. And so, was
1: it? When did you finally get to see Wicked?
0: Oh my God! I I saw it when I was, I think, in the sixth grade, um, and that's also a big moment where I was like, I if I can do anything like that, I want to do it. Um, it was a it was big. It was a big moment for Tadeo. Um So yeah, so I decided to to pursue it professionally and right about the same time. Um, A professor from SMU, Bernard Cummings, who I owe many, many, many things to, um, came to visit my high school because he was visiting a a friend who taught there. Um, And we were doing like a production of Pippin. And he saw me in rehearsal and invited me to audition for the program. And and so everything kind of just like unraveled um, in in a way that I didn't, a, intend to, or B, expect it to.
1: So then this pretending, this listening to Wicked, all laid down the groundwork for this professor from SMU to finally see you. So what was that audition process like? Because I assume you hadn't done a lot of auditioning up to that point. I had
0: it. No, but it actually, it was on the spot, Patrick. So like after rehearsal, he was like, do you want to audition? And I was like, uh, sh- yes, sure. Um... And then the day that we were set to do it, I remember it to this day. The sky fell in Monterrey, like it has never rained that hard in Monterrey. So I, I called my drama teacher, and I was like, "Hey, apo- please apologize to this man profusely because I am I'm just I cannot leave my house." And he was like, "It's fine." So we we, we rescheduled for another day. I went in with a monologue I found online. I typed in monologues on the Google. I found one. It had a lot of words. It had a lot of words. And you memorized them. I did. And I went in and I, I did, I did the best that I could. Um, And he was very kind. And then he was like, do you have anything else? And I didn't. So I was like, I can, I can give you my longest line from Pippin. And I can make it very dramatic. And he was like, "Okay." And then he was like, "Do you have a song? Can you can you sing a song?" And I was like, "I can sing a song from Pippin." Um, and I did. And then two weeks later, he emailed me shockingly and was like, "Hey, we'd love to offer you a spot." That must have been surprising, because you're it like, was, "What? Yes, like, what did I do to earn this?" I had, I legitimately could not believe it. I was like, "I don't. They like, are they?" Do they need diverse? Like, I my my mind went to like, do they need diversity points? Like, right? why? I get it.
1: Yeah. Um. And so, when you got to SMU, did it make more sense? Did you feel like, oh, okay, this was the right place, or or did you feel behind in any way?
0: I felt. I totally felt behind. Um. But everyone there was at, at when I got there, everyone there was really kind and and patient. And it was also, like, because I grew up in Monterrey, like, really close to the border, I kind of grew up between both cultures. Like, I, I grew up I... being Mexican, but, like, a lot of the people that were around me are either dual citizens or Americans or Canadians. Um, so I kind of I didn't expect, expect it to feel different. I only expected it to feel different in terms of oh everyone's been doing theater their entire lives except for me, um, but when I got there that what also was not the case at all.
1: So there are other newbies there.
0: Yes, there were other newbies. It wasn't like culture shock; it was more like culture burn. I like to say because a lot of things were are very were very similar, but then a lot of things I would be like. Oh, that's different. Oh, sense of humor is different. And it was it was very strange.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. A previous guest, Bianca Monarchine, she she oh, mentioned the same thing about born and raised in Mexico, but then crossing the border to go to school. And so she kind of got both cultures and started to feel at home in both.
0: Yeah.
1: As you say, that it wasn't so much the culture shock, it was just the being in a new environment of learning something that you were still basically at the beginning stages of.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it also, it kind of felt like I grew up in this bubble, which I basically did. Because um, everyone around me, everyone I knew was either Mexican-American or Canadian. It was very sheltered. And and then I, I'm living in like, I'm living with other artists and I'm living in Dallas and I'm living in Texas, which is a whole other experience. So yeah, it, it was just really, it was a very uncomfortable time, but I think it was, there was beauty in the uncomfortableness of it.
1: And in what ways was it uncomfortable to you?
0: Just dealing with, with topics that I had never dealt with personally, just like academically, dealing with um, talking about racism, talking about being vulnerable in front of other people, ta- like having conversations about, Stuff that's real and in the real world, but had never been kind of that, that present in my day to day life like, does that make sense
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like oh, having my eyes opened in a very real way um and going through things that kind of like not only made me understand my privilege but also understand um race in. America and race in, in the world, um, immigration in America, and just ha- having my eyes be open to all of these things vi- in a very personal way was a little j- jarring. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because in coming to Dallas, did you feel that sense of otherness that you didn't feel being in Mexico?
0: I mean, I, I, I feel like I've kind of felt otherness all the time just because I'm Mexican, but I'm, I'm, I'm white in complexion. I'm very, very white passing. Um, so there was, so there's always the issue of, of either what is he, is he Mexican enough? So that was not new to me. Um, but then moving to Dallas, moving to the United States, um, and be, and then being the only one, no, at the time I was the only Mexican Or only international Mexican in the program, then that created a whole other sense of otherness.
1: I did some digging and found that Tadeo was only one of a handful of Mexican students at SMU. In the year of his graduation, the 2018-19 school year, the international enrollment was 1,596 students, which comprised 14% of total enrollment there at Southern Methodist University. But from Mexico specifically, there were only 50 students. Now, much like Bianca Marroquin, Tadeo grew up learning both English and Spanish. So while he did have a smoother transition than some coming to America and going to college, that didn't mean that language and communication was easy for him. So, in your classes and what you were learning, what was the biggest hurdle or challenges for you to start to pick up so that you didn't feel as behind or, you know, to kind of catch yourself up to where you thought you should be?
0: I, well, I started kind of working a little harder than I had to in the sense that whenever I would kind of like struggle or, or feel behind, I would kind of just translate it into Spanish whatever the situation was, <laughs> um, whether that was like a scene or like a personal dilemma uh, and just tr- kind of like translating it into Spanish because a professor said it best when she said, you know, academically you, you're comfortable speaking English and, and Spanish, but like personally, vulnerably you've only ever had to speak in Spanish. So kind of being able to be, be made aware be aware of that and use that in a way to help me i, f- I found was a very was kind of like the was kind of like the golden ticket
1: in what way does the the spanish language give you a way to i guess to be more open or vulnerable and that the english language doesn't
0: i think because whenever just in my personal life um, whenever i have a problem whenever i feel a certain type of way I go about it in Spanish. Um, so I either discuss it in Spanish, I think about it in Spanish, I write it, I write about it in Spanish. Um, and English was always kind of like my academic language. I was very fortunate and went to a school that was kind of like 80% in English, 20% in Spanish. So I would speak in English all day. So in class, I'd be like, the answer is four. And then i turn to my friend and be like, ¿Qué onda? ¿Qué vamos a hacer el viernes? So... Personally, I was always speaking Spanish, so I think, I, I think it was mostly that—the fact that I, I wasn't used to speaking about personal things in English, and wasn't so, used. So it's to almost to like,
1: like there was this line between the two.
0: Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Like so, even now, I feel like I'm I'm blabbering in English because I'm like, <laughs> what are the words? But even in personal situations as well, like having because you know in an acting class you'll go up and then you'll talk and then the, the professor will often ask you something very, very vulnerable about yourself mm-hmm. and just having to articulate it in english, i don't know why it became like the hardest thing
1: is is that something that uh, is English taught a lot in monterey specifically
0: um i i mean i I was very privileged to go to to go to the school where I learned it at school. Um, so a l- some schools offer it, not all schools offer it. Um, but then also I, I also had the the benefit of going to theater school and having an entire class dedicated to like accents and dialects. <laughs> so I'm also like, I, I kind of like, che- I feel like I cheated a little bit.
1: <laughs> well, 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 no, it's the same way. I, I grew up in the South and that's a very distinctive accent. And my mother I don't sound anything like her or most of my, my relatives, you know, my, my accent is like, not even there. There's like a few words where it pops out. But
0: yeah. Do you find that you can like tap back into it easily?
1: Yes. I know that I can, but it's interesting. There, there was one audition where, you know, they needed some from Alabama. I was like, you know, raise my hand. And and it's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound right. I'm Like, well, this is, this is what it is. This is I mean, oh I mean, God. I mean, I think they <laughs> they wanted something stereotypical, and speaking yeah. of of stereotypes, is that something that you then found? It's like, oh well, you need to be this kind of Mexican or you need to speak Spanish or English in this way
0: Yes, a hundred percent, and it's it again, because I don't look like the stereotypical Mexican that we are we have often seen portrayed on television or film or whatever um a lot of times people had trouble kind of like placing me so then it became a whole existential crisis because i was like am i like am i mexican enough to be thought of as mexican in the industry do i have to like am am i gonna get the chance to play these parts um there was there was actually one audition that i did in college and the the director was young and and she is learning too. um but i was going up for this um Latino part and she and she asked me, she came up to me and she was like, Can you do an accent? And I was like, Yes, but can we can we talk about this? Because there's meant like a Mexican accent, a Puerto Rican accent. Like there's many different yeah. accents and dialects. And even within Mexico, within it's an Mexico country. Yeah, right. So it's like, Do you want a regio accent? Do you want a Ciudad de Mexico accent? Um, and she was just like, just give me anything. Um, and that was a whole other kind of like conversation to make myself comfortable in Mm -hmm. um because you you don't want to kind of a you don't want to be disrespectful um but b you also want to make it they're putting on a show so they're gonna put they're gonna put this on stage for other people to see um so you also want to be of assistance to the peace and the character in
1: your journey through college then did you find there was a lot of these kind of teaching moments where you were in a position to then be this voice of hey this is something you need to think about
0: yes and you know and and sometimes i took it and sometimes i didn't um oftentimes it was out of fear or and or shyness or feeling out of place um it goes back to kind of like understanding the stories that are that we should tell or that we should kind of like, like let someone else tell. Um, so yeah, I had a, I had a lot of meetings with a lot of different professors mm-hmm. to, t- to talk about issues that I had. Um, and I found out that a, a lot of it was also easier to talk about than actually do because we're also working for a system. Um, and, you know, when professors or when a company is casting a show, they also have different things they need to consider, whether or not it's a company, whether or not um, someone like in in a, a student situation, whether or not someone needs to be cast first. Like you have this certain amount of seniors. And um, so kind of like understanding that as well was really big for me, understanding that it's, it's way easier said than done, but also having the conversations at least allowed the door to open up a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and invite a little bit of change in, which is all we can hope for.
1: Yeah, I've I've always found that that's one interesting thing when it comes to colleges and that that kind of hierarchy of well these are seniors so we need to they've been in the program four years we need to give yeah. them some priority you're a freshman so you just need to be in the ensemble or whatever and so there is that and and certainly it depends on the size of the school but it's one of those things where I I, I understand why colleges are doing it but I also disagree with the fact that if you really really want to prepare someone for this job, for this business, you can't be giving a role to a senior just because they're a senior. You need to be giving it to, if, look, if that 18 year old knocks the pants off the 20 year old who's coming in, you know, then they need to get it. It doesn't matter that the junior has been there for three years.
0: I mean, I agree with that too. And it it goes back to whatever the university policy is. Um, But also you can't like, if, if you, if you're also going to have that rule, you at least got to stick to it, not yes. stick to it sometimes. And then when <laughs> it's convenient for you, like kind of like shuffle the cards a little bit. Cause then you're going to, cause then you're going to have issues.
1: Yeah. A, a crappy rule can be a crappy rule. As long as everybody has to abide by it. Yes. That's how it is. But once yeah. crappy rules are subjective, then that's no good for anyone. It's, it beca- it becomes a little hard. Did you find yourself, cause you've mentioned, As far as being lighter skinned, but yet being fully Mexican, of course, did you feel like, oh, that just opens me up to more
0: roles or did that complicate any of the roles you would go out for? I think it complicated it a little bit because I didn't even feel pigeonholed. I just felt like I felt like they didn't know what box to put me in Um, until. We, un, until, but I, here's the thing. I, I also cannot complain because I was always, I always had the privilege um, of being of being cast. I was, I always had quote unquote work in, in college, so I was always kind of like taken care of. I, w- I always felt supported, um, but when it came to like taking that next step, going from. The crappy role onto the okay I think I'm ready for like a little more dialogue now that's when things became a little bit tricky because I'd see my friends who were getting cast with me kind of like take the next step and get and getting better and better roles and I would still kind of like stay in the back hmm. um, and I was like I just don't like I'm I'm trying really hard I don't I don't know what's and they, again, that's just also the business, like you you try really hard and it just does not always go your way. Well, yeah.
1: But in your case, did that feel like, oh, maybe I'm not as, as good as I need to be? Maybe I need to train more, work harder? Or did it feel like, oh, I'm just in this kind of racial ambiguity that they don't know what to do with?
0: It was a little bit of both, but I Put, I I kind of like put the blame on myself because I I also didn't want to be the guy who is like I am not cast and it is because of this. I want I kind of wanted to take responsibility for it. Um. So for me that meant like I think I just need to work. I think I just need to suck less. I just I need to be better. But it, I found that it wasn't until I brought all of me into the room, and that meant. Um, like choosing a piece in Spanish and standing by it, um, bringing my full identity into the callback room, that's when I started to see results.
1: And for you, what did that mean to bring your full self in? What was
0: the the noticeable change
1: from before and after that?
0: I felt like I was trying to put on this persona of what I would either see my classmates do or see my professors do, because that's also that was also part of the beauty of college. I would like have a lesson from a, pro- from a professor and then like be able to go and see him or her on- in a production, like in the Dallas community um, and seeing them like practice what they preach. That was also a really big gift, but then like trying to copy that or trying to, or like s- seeing one of my classmates be praised and saying like, that's good acting. I, I need to do that exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and figuring out that I don't need to do that and I can just be myself because um, that's where the best work lies um, for each and every actor. Um, and when I mean bring all of me into the room, I mean, like, for example, when a director says celebrate, instead of going yippee kaye, yay I, I go, que, que buen pedo. So, like, actually celebrating how I would celebrate, Um and that's and that's when I started not only growing the most as an actor but ha- like actually loving the work as much as I thought I would mm. if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, because it sounds like you were able to to be fully present for it rather than having to hide behind something and like here's here's the facade, here's the mask, here here's here's, yeah. here's what I'm going to show you and that mask is only a portion of it. A portion of yes, you. Yes,
0: yes, yes. And so the rest 100%. of you was hidden
1: back. Yeah, I, th- I think that, I mean, I know that for myself, that's something, <clears throat> excuse me, that I've had to battle because I so often walk into the audition room and I want to give them what they want rather than yeah. give them what I
0: have, you know? Yes, 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 yes. And also... I think giving yourself permission to, to do that is, is so hard. Um, because of course you, of course you want to get the job. Everyone wants to get the job. Um, but so, so it's really, I think it's really hard to believe that the, the character is already inside of you. Mm. You kind of always feel like you have to put something on when that is, I find that that's not really often the case. And even like pro, like going into professional work, um, I found myself having to wait until someone else gave me permission in order to bring all of me into the room. Mm. Um, so it's a it's it's a lesson I'm still learning to this day.
1: You you will continue to learn. Just you know. <laughs> just letting you know.
0: <laughs>
1: While Tadeo may have still been learning to bring his full self into auditions and on stage he was having a much easier time devoting himself to the betterment of his college experience. And one clear example of this is when he was given the Avella Wynne Hay Award, which is based on scholarship, character, and contribution to the SMU community.
0: Yeah, it's a whole thing, but a bunch of my friends at Southern Methodist University, um, we, we went in at an interesting time because... We went in freshman year. Sophomore year was the election.
1: He's referring, of course, to the 2016 battle between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton.
0: And we found ourselves having really interesting and vulnerable and hard conversations surrounding race, gender, what stories are ours to tell, what stories are not ours to tell. Um, and And a bunch of us being people of color kind of started speaking out more. And because I think a bunch of my class, a bunch of my friends, a couple other people in the SMU theater community started having these conversations, Um, the school, the the actual theater department at SMU was able to kind of take a step back and actually think about their season, what kind of shows they did, what kind of parts were available to students, how they handled those shows, because that's also incredibly important. Um, and yeah, so so that so that was more because the the Avila hey or I don't really Avila hey. that one um, <laughs> was was for kind of helping do that in fighting for the Latinx and Hispanic community at the SMU Theater program.
1: As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, that desire to increase Latino and Hispanic representation in theater is a driving force of Tadeo's mission and purpose as an actor.
0: One of the most shocking things for me me was that article that came out, I think, either last year about the the reports of um, Latinx or Hispanic actors in film in the US. And it listed how many characters in these movies had been Latinx, had speaking parts. And it had like shocking, like in in all of the movies, only two movies had um, a female Latina over 50. Um, And in both movies, that female Latino was Jennifer Lopez.
1: The study he's referring to was conducted by the University of Southern California in Annenberg in coordination with the National Association of Latino Independent Producers and Wise Entertainment. The full study was called Latinos in Film, Erasure on Screen and Behind the Camera Across 1,200 Popular Movies. It's a fairly dense study with a lot of statistics, covering the top 100 movies each year from 2007 to 2018. But one of the stats that stuck out to me is that the Latino community comprises 23% of the movie tickets sold, yet only 3% of these movies featured a Latino lead or co-lead.
0: It was analyzing the way that Latinos were being portrayed. And it was this whole study that was al- that also wanted to see um, the correlation between that and how the community saw themselves. Mm. Um, and, and so how it's been proven that if a community sees itself represented as um, rapists and drug lords and gardeners and, and all those stereotypes that they're, that's, that's what they think of themselves as. And it's I, I find that it's been slow it's been slowly progressing in the US because I was in Mexico. So then being an American, being like, oh my God, all of these <laughs> projects and and no one is giving no one's giving a voice, no one's giving time to let the next actors is heartbreaking. And, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a line because you, you want to challenge and then you also want to celebrate. Um, then you want to celebrate the films like In the Heights that's bound to come out and you want to celebrate TV shows like Vida and Los Spookies and and all of these beautiful shows that are like actually challenging society and, and forcing them to look at us. Um, but then you also kind of like want to be mad and fight for more and demand for more. um. It's a, it's a very strange time, but it's, I think it's also a very beautiful time that hopefully brings forth just a lot of growth and change.
1: And for you personally, obviously, the, you know, you, you ask 10 different people, you'll get 10 different answers. But for you, what does that representation mean? Does it mean that Latinx and Hispanic people are presented as themselves and you're telling those particular stories and those are coming to the forefront? Or is it that, Oh, these are just people going about their business and they happen to be Hispanic. Is there one that is kind of pushed more than the other?
0: I mean, I personally want to see more of both. Um, Cause I think that the fight is a lot of like, let us tell our stories, but then I think there's also power in like having a, a, a little Mexican um, human be able to like watch a Marvel movie and have one of the superheroes be right. Latinx yeah. and speak in Spanish.
1: You know, because in speaking to that, you know, like Chad Chadwick Bozeman.
0: Yes, exactly. You know, he
1: rest in peace. It, it was so interesting to hear because I saw the, you know, people talking about his movies and this is, you know, interviews back when he was alive, but, but they were just talking about how, amazing it was and I mean the movie did well anyway it was a great movie yeah Yeah, but it also gave such representation of a black person being a superhero someone to look up to and 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 then he's like one of many superheroes exactly and this is something that and and I'll just speak for white people of my own experience but I think we don't often think of seeing yourself on stage or on screen and it and it reflecting or, or it being something that means something to you. Cause it's like, Oh, well, yeah, I, I would love to audition for that. Or, Oh yeah, I could play that role. But for someone where they don't see themselves on stage or on screen to finally see that, that face or that voice, it's like, Oh, Oh, I, I can do that. I can be that.
0: Exactly. A hundred. Exactly. And I also like, I want to, I want to celebrate and honor Chadwick Bozeman, but also that it was just one superhero. Like, how many Marvel superheroes have there been? How many of them have been black too? So, like, the, I think. So I, I, yes. So, so my my frustration is for Latinx work, and it's also for black work because we need more of both of them, and more Asian work, and more um, Middle Eastern work, and I think I think we just need more diversity all around, so that. Um, those communities, specifically in America, but also the world, because a lot of us get, like, even in Mexico, we see a lot of American film. Um, that's kind of what we get. We have gorgeous, incredible Mexican cinema, but we also get all of the American um, movies and all the U.S. movies that premiere over there. Um, so just seeing more of ourselves in that is, is huge, because um, those movies get, like, translated into many many different languages and and many people see them Um, so there's there's a lot of power in that
1: does it give you yourself hope that you can do the types of roles you want to do or do you think that they still have yet to be written for you
0: oh patrick Ooh, you know first of all it depends on the day (laughs) um um because i i see characters on screen that i'm like you know not even I could have, did, like, one, one of my Latinx um, um, community members could have done that too, and it could have been incredible. Um, but then also, you know, the the dream would be like to have a show about Mexicans, and they're all different. They all look different. Yeah. They all sound different, because that's what it is. And I think that when we get to that, I think that's when we can fully celebrate and say, Hey, we've done it. You know, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. cause I think that it's all right. Right now it feels like it's all kind of like baby steps. Um, and we're kind of like trying to get there, but it still feels like baby steps.
1: Because is race itself, skin color, an issue within Mexico?
0: Oh yes. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. Um, and you can even see the way the way like when the the beautiful Yalitza was nominated for the Oscar for, for Roma, um people like bullied her online for the color of her skin, like Mexicans did. You know, that, that says a lot. And you know, I think I think it's part of the the eye-opening time we're in right now where we're able to say like, oh no, racism is a thing everywhere. Um and there's many different kinds of racism as well. Um, but for sure it happens in Mexico.
1: When are those times, and, it, and we can even apply it to, to theater and, and film, And that, when are those times when race absolutely matters and you need to, to, to be cognizant of that and you need to honor that? And when are those times when it shouldn't matter at all? It needs to be the broad spectrum and race shouldn't play a factor.
0: You know, Badger, I don't. That's such a good question. I just don't know if I'm the person to ask it to, because I am white passing and I benefit from white privilege, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. Um, I would I would love to have that conversation as well, but I would I would love to have it with someone who actually ex- experiences racism. Uh, or, or or has experienced racism on a, on a day-to-day basis.
1: And come next week, that's actually what I'll be doing. Over the course of two episodes, I'm bringing back former guests of the podcast, Hispanic actors and singers and writers who share their own stories and experiences in this industry. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The first episode will feature those who felt most comfortable telling their stories in English, and will address issues like the one Tadeo brought up about being Hispanic, but passing for white. The second episode will feature Hispanic artists telling their own stories in Spanish. Now, in both episodes, there will be no back and forth, no Q&A. It will be just them sharing from the heart. So please join me for that two-part series with former WinMe guests. As we finish up today's episode, I wanted to go back to that idea of honoring your heritage, embracing where you came from. I read a story of one well-known actor this summer who came to terms with his own heritage. Now, the name James David Rodriguez may not ring a bell to you, but if I said James Roday... Then you'd recognize him as one of the co-stars in the hit TV show, Psych. His name change came early in his career, based upon two auditions. The first was for the lead role in a major film. He had a great audition, but the casting director told him that he didn't think he could call him back because his last name was Rodriguez. Instead, the casting director brought him back for the small part of a gangster. But after reading for that role he was told he didn't look Latino enough. That movie was Primal Fear, and that lead role was eventually filled by Edward Norton, and it is essentially what launched his career. That second audition for James was for a role in a TV pilot produced by DreamWorks. The casting directors and producers were concerned because the role wasn't written for an Hispanic or Mexican. And they were also worried that the casting of a white guy with a Mexican name could be interpreted as their version of diverse casting and that there would be a reaction to that.
0: When I was uh, given my first professional opportunity, I was told, uh, you know, uh, you might want to give some real consideration to changing your name. Uh, You don't look like Rodriguez. And this role is not Latino. And then I built a career playing white guys with a, with a made-up white name.
1: For 20 years, he went by the name James Roday, which is the combination of his last name, Rodriguez, and middle name, David. But in light of recent events, he felt he couldn't hide behind his made-up white name anymore.
0: Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. Um, once again... Uh, we as a society were forced to uh, stare at ourselves in the mirror. I'm going to be out there speaking on behalf of people of color. Uh, I wanted—I didn't want to be disingenuous. I didn't want to be um, a facsimile of a person with a with a Mexican last name.
1: And this goes back to that idea Tadeo mentioned of being fully yourself and bringing all of you into the audition room and into your performance. And that is a lesson we can all learn, regardless of our heritage. A big thank you again to Tadeo Martinez for being on the podcast today. And I greatly appreciate you joining us as well for this important conversation. As I mentioned, next week is the English and Spanish episodes with former Hispanic guests of the podcast. But stay tuned up next for the Final Five with Tadeo, where he'll also talk about one of his favorite performances in the hilarious farce, Noises Off. Until then, I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones reminding you that the reasons for not making it may be frustrating and arbitrary, but the reasons to keep going are even more numerous and rewarding. Join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.